Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On Friday, January 22nd, a UN treaty outlawing nuclear weapons went into effect, but the United States and other major powers have not signed on. Some are protesting in the U.S. to press the Biden administration to sign the treaty. Our guest is Alice Slater, who is on the board of World Without War and the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. And indigenous nations in the United States, hard hit by COVID-19, are alarmed at the impact on their nations in terms of loss of life and also the threat to their culture, including maintaining their traditional languages. We speak with Ethel Branch, former attorney general for the Navajo Nation. And tens of thousands of farmers protesting in India for the past seven weeks managed to reach the capital city of Delhi today, Tuesday, January 26th. They are protesting against measures proposed by the Indian Prime Minister Modi, who, by the way, a friend of Trump, to privatize agriculture. 70% of agricultural workers in India are women, and women have played a central role in the protests. And the movement of farmers is now busting out globally. Protests have broken out in California's Kern County and other parts of the United States and world in solidarity with the Indian farmers and also in defense of family farms and against poverty and corporate takeovers of farms. Our guest is London-based Didi Rossi, who has been in touch with women on the ground in India and is part of an effort in the UK to get the word out about the protests and to call for solidarity. The UK, like the United States, has a large population of people of Indian descent. Let us go to a clip from Reuters on what happened on the ground in Delhi on Tuesday, January 26th. Thousands of Indian farmers entered the historic Red Fort complex in the capital on Tuesday, one even swinging from a flagpole to the sound of cheers as violence escalated elsewhere. The farmers are angry about new laws that they say help large private buyers at their expense. Protesters also charged at police with sticks, who in turn used their batons and tear gas shells to disperse them. Video footage appeared to show protesters surrounding an unidentified body cloaked in flags. The clashes were preceded by a convoy of tens of thousands of farmers driving their tractors through the fringes of the city. Hundreds, some on horseback, broke away from the main route approved by police to head for central Delhi. They spoke of wanting to reach the capital to get their message to Prime Minister Narendra Modi. We are going to Delhi to answer the call of our leaders to participate in a tractor rally. This law is like poison to us. We are not going to accept it in any condition. We request that Modi takes back the laws as soon as possible. The protest coincided with India's Republic Day and threatened to overshadow the annual military parade. For almost two months, the farmers have been camping outside New Delhi in protest of the agricultural reforms. Agriculture employs about half of India's population of 1.3 billion, and unrest among an estimated 150 million land-owning farmers worries the government. 
The protests pose one of the biggest challenges to Prime Minister Modi since he came to power in 2014. Nine rounds of talks with farmers' unions have failed to end the protests, and farm leaders have rejected the government's offer to delay the laws for 18 months, making a push for repeal instead. Alrighty, and that was uh, from Reuters. And we'll see what the Biden administration has to say about this, including Kamala Harris, who, of course, uh, also is of Indian descent. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The Senate will take over the impeachment proceedings after House impeachment managers walked the article of impeachment against former President Donald Trump over to the other chamber. All 100 senators are to be sworn in as jurors. The House impeached Trump for urging a mob of his supporters to head to the Capitol building on January 6th to try and prevent the certification of Joe Biden's election win. That's when they forced their way in and fought with Capitol Police. Five people died in the clash. The impeachment trial is scheduled to begin early next month. Senate Republicans have argued that impeaching a former president is unconstitutional and divisive. Democrats say Trump must be held to account for his role in the deadly insurrection. The state of California has lifted COVID-19 restrictions for most of the state, Governor Gavin Newsom said businesses like barbershops, hair and nail salons, and outdoor restaurant dining can resume with some modifications. Scott Baba reports. Coronavirus numbers have been steadily improving in the state for the last two weeks after cresting during the sharp holiday surge. Newsom said the state seems to be moving in the right direction. We're seeing a flattening of the curve. Everything that should be up is up. Everything that should be down is down. Case rates, positivity rates, hospitalizations, ICUs, testing starting to go back up, as well as vaccination rates in this state. But we are not out of the woods. San Francisco Mayor London Breed said that while the latest numbers are encouraging, now is not the time to become complacent. Today is, of course, a day of celebration, but it's also a day to just remind ourselves of the importance of how much more work we have to do to get to a better place. I'm Scott Bob of Pacifica Radio, KPFA. The Senate voted overwhelmingly Monday to confirm Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary. Yellen is the first woman to lead the department. Yellen is tasked with leading President Biden's COVID-19 economic recovery effort. Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown said on the Senate floor that Yellen is the right person for the job. Janet Yellen has the experience, the talent, and the commitment to service to deliver results. She's the right person for these tumultuous times. She's, she will rise to meet this moment to help our country build back better. All 15 votes against Yellen's confirmation came from Republican lawmakers. Some had argued that Yellen was too willing to raise taxes. She's the first person ever who will have served as Treasury Secretary, Federal Reserve Board Chair, and Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. With people struggling across the country in this pandemic economy, labor groups in Ohio are renewing a push for a $15 per hour minimum wage in the state. More from Mary Sherman. State Representative Bridget Kelly 
A Democrat from Cincinnati is asking colleagues to co-sponsor a bill modeled after a recently passed ballot initiative in Florida. The Ohio measure calls for the current wage of $8.80 an hour to be raised to $10 in 2022. It would then increase every year until hitting $15 in 2027. Kelly says too many working Ohioans can't make ends meet, including some full-time workers. We can't continue to bury our heads in the sand. We need to be modernizing our minimum wage, creating a pathway for people and families to be able to take care of themselves and to be able to meaningfully participate in our economy. Two Democratic state senators, Cecil Thomas of Cincinnati and Herschel Craig of Columbus, are introducing a companion bill in the Senate. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden wants to more than double the current federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. It's been stuck at $7.25 since 2009. Mary Sherman reporting. A major winter storm dropped more than a foot of snow on parts of Nebraska and Iowa. It's disrupting traffic and shuttering some schools while blanketing other parts of the middle of the country. There were early closures of several coronavirus testing sites on Monday in Nebraska and Iowa, and both states saw 12 or 13 inches of snow in places by this morning. At least four inches of snow was expected today across most of an area stretching from central Kansas northeast to Chicago and southern Michigan. Elsewhere in the U.S., a storm buried northern Arizona in snow on Monday while sending flurries to the outskirts of Las Vegas and Phoenix. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell is backing off his demand that Senate Democrats preserve the procedural tool known as the filibuster. In its current form, the tool requires a 60-vote threshold to advance most legislation. McConnell said Monday he has essentially accomplished his goal after two Democratic senators said they would not agree to the rules change. With McConnell's announcement, a standoff over organizing the Senate that has stalled proceedings in the opening days of the Biden administration may subside. The new Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had refused to cede to McConnell's demands. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth on Tuesday, January 26th. The people of India celebrate Republic Day. The holiday honors the date on which the Constitution of India came into effect on January 26, 1950, formally turning India into an independent republic. This was a major development for the people of India who had suffered from hundreds of years of colonization uh, by the British. Today, 71 years later, the people of India are continuing their fight for freedom. On the 71st anniversary of Republic Day, tens of thousands of protesting farmers are driving, have driven into India's capital of of Delhi on tractors. Many of them are women who account for 70% of agricultural work, but are paid half as much as the men. The farmers are protesting against agriculture reform laws passed by the parliament last September 2020. They are also demanding pay equity for women farmers and all agricultural workers. Prime Minister Nadari Modi's government claims the laws will benefit farmers and boost production through private investment, but the farmers Uh, cry foul, privatization, they say. Many farmers are saying the legislation will lead to the monopolization and commercialization of agriculture, making them even more vulnerable to exploitation. 
uh, reports have surfaced that clashes broke out between farmers and the police in New Delhi. Police fired tear gas canisters and beat protesters with sticks at several locations after farmers broke through the barricades. This according to the Washington Post. Now, in the lead up to today's actions, thousands of farmers have been blocking key highways uh, connecting New Delhi with the country's north for almost two months, demanding a complete withdrawal of laws. And it seems as though their protests have inspired solidarity protests in other parts of the world, including in Bakersfield, California, and other parts of the United States. Before we welcome our guests, let us go to a protest that took place in Bakersfield, uh, California, in solidarity with the Indian uh, farmers and also with their own demands. Tens of thousands of farmers in India are protesting a recent move by their government. And today, Indian farmers in Kern County showed their solidarity. So 17th Proa Shaheen joins us with this report. Proa? That's right, Moses. Hundreds of local Indian farmers held a peaceful protest in southeast Bakersfield today. It's part of an international movement that began in India in support of small farmers. It's the largest mobilization of farmers in Indian history. For the past seven weeks, tens of thousands of farmers in India have been peacefully protesting against three laws passed by their government. What the laws would do, they're basically trying to like privatize the agriculture. Farmers would be selling directly to possibly even corporations, and the corporations would kind of be setting the laws. Most of the protesters are traveling from the Punjab region of India to the country's capital city of Delhi. They're driving hundreds of miles in their tractors and trolleys. Indians from all over the world are coming together in solid with this protest, even here in Kern County, almost 8,000 miles away. We want them to see that it's not just the people in India that are opposed to this, it's people all around the world. Hundreds of local Indian farmers came out in cars and tractors. They drove along South Fairfax Road from East Panama Lane to Buena Vista Boulevard. Even though this is a you know, human struggle going on in India, we feel it in our hearts here and we're so passionate about it. And that's why you see all these people out here because they feel the same way. All in support of small farmers. The government should want the farmers to thrive because that makes the whole country thrive. And so um, when you try to marginalize a group or you try to you know, take away the rights of a group, especially a group like farmers, I mean, they're feeding the world. So it's really important. Many of them come from a long family of farmers with ties back in India. And, you know, my parents came from India and they know what it's like, the corruption. And we're just over here showing our support, voicing our uh, opinions and saying, you know, give give the farmers what they want. No farmers, no food. Some fear that what's happening to farmers in India could happen in the United States. There's so many small family farms here and, you know, if we experience that over here, you know, what could it lead to? I mean, there's going to be millions of people without food, um, loss of jobs. Although the protest in India originated in the Punjab region, Indians from all over the country are now uniting to protect their small farmers. Perla Shaheen, 17 News. 
Alrighty, there you go, right in California, solidarity protests going on. I'd now like to welcome London-based Dee Dee Rossi. For several years, uh, Dee Dee Rossi, who has been with the Global Women's Strike, has been a key contact for the strike in Chhattisgarh, India, um, where the a, a very a big focus on Dalit and uh, tribal women. She now is involved in helping to spread the word, not only about the, the strike, the farmer's strike, but also about the central role of women in the strike. Didi Rossi, you welcome. Hi, good morning. Okay, so Didi, you have been part of the effort with others in the strike in sending a message of support to farmers in India uh, on Republic Day. Um, could you share some of the highlights of that message for us? Yes, um, we have been we have been supporting the demand of the millions of striking farmers, whose main demand is to repeal. Modi's three farm laws. Um, we want to show the farmers how much international support is. It was fantastic to hear of the protests in California. There has been, there's been protests of the Indian diaspora in many different countries. Even in the UK, there's children, Sikh children, supporting the farmers' protests. And we really want to show that we, the whole world is watching and we are seeing the determination of the farmers' movement despite the violent repression that they're facing, uh, including today, from the police and the authorities. Um, and we, you know, we, we ourselves have been learning what the farm laws that they're protesting against will do. They would increase the exploitation of farmers by international national corporation by taking away, removing existing price guarantees for crop sales. And they would, you know, meaning that farmers would go more into debt, and that has been... Um, um, people will know a terrible problem. India has one of the highest suicide rates of farmers, um, over 400,000 in the last 25 years, because people are desperate. They cannot make ends meet. They cannot feed themselves and their families. Um, the, the other law of the government is to um, also remove cereals, pulses, potatoes from the list of what they call essential commodities and deregulate food supply systems, um, which, you know, would cause the starvation of millions of people in India. And um, that's why farmers are protesting. That's why farmers' families and many other workers, waged and unwaged, have supported the farmers' protests. And, um, you know, as, as you said, Margaret, 70% of farmers are women uh, who own just over 10% of the land. And... Um, women farmers get paid a third to half of the low wages that men farmers are paid. And Dalit and Adivasi women laborers get paid even less because of the discrimination they face. Um, if I may say, the organization that is on the ground in Chhattisgarh, Nawa Chhattisgarh Mahila Samiti, which is an organization of Dalit and Adivasi women, says in our statement that we quoted them, they fully support the struggles of farmers' movements, and especially women farmers all over India. Most of the work is done by women, and the biggest pressure falls on them. International recognition and support means a huge amount. Right, and um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Didi, and for your work helping to coordinate this. Now, 
as you say, I mean, these laws, the, the Modi, the, the court actually in India, uh, they've kind of put a hold on, on Modi's plans, even though he still wants to proceed with them and the farmers are not uh, backing down. And it's amazing that they have been camped out outside the city of of Delhi for a few months now, um, and including uh, women and children. And I saw somewhere that there kind of freedom schools of a sort um, uh, grew up and were established as part of the of, of the encampment of these farmers. So just tell us a, a bit now about how central women have been on this, because in the media that you see here, of course, they focus on the men. Of course, they focus on the what they're calling violent clashes uh, that took place uh, today, um, which is Republic Day in India. Uh, but we don't hear or see a lot about the women, Didi Rossi. Yes, the, the, the women have been really um, an integral part um, of the protests themselves. A lot of the women, women were also driving tractors uh, today. Um, they were, you know, with mothers with their children, whole families have come. And it's also, can I stress that the, the protesters are people of all ages, and the police violence has been, regardless of age or, you know, they have beating people, very elderly people, as well as, um, you know, younger people and the the women have really been keeping the the sit like this the protest outside on the borders of Delhi for all these weeks going. Uh, women in you know in the media have talked of 12-hour days, you know, uh, cooking, feeding the whole uh, protest movement, and you know helping with uh, you know bedding and and very basic stuff like that, which is the general housework that is needed to keep these struggles going, as well as being, you know, farm laborers and farmers themselves. Um, they have really helped, yeah, to keep it all going. And um, I just wanted to say that, um, can I just stress another thing? The farmers' protests have, from the beginning, they have said they are peaceful protests, and they have been. Um, you know, the, the, the Internet, uh, Modi, the prime minister, has shut down and suspended part of the internet in Delhi um, and while the Republic Day uh, ceremonies have been going on you know this violence has been uh, turned on the protesters despite that you know tens of thousands as you said protesters have got into Delhi and are making their issues and their demands heard and they have said they will not go home until the farm laws are repealed until they're scrapped they do not want any more discussions with the government, and the government has not budged, and they will continue. And their determination is something that we all look to and, you know, uh, and must support in every way that we can. Right, and uh, Didi Rossi, you like me, a part of the of the global movement, uh, demanding a care income for people who uh, take care of other people as well as who care for the land. And there is definitely an interrelationship between people who are farmers and uh, caring for the land because that's what they do. And we know in India, we've certainly covered on on Sojourner Truth the uh, concern that people around the world. Uh, 
uh, starting with indigenous people have about the use of genetically engineered crops and genetically engineered seeds. And we know that that has had a devastating impact on farmers in India and uh, contributed to the huge uh, numbers of farmers, as you say, Didi, who have committed uh, suicide over the years. You know, they get into great debt uh, because of uh, this commercialization and these genetically engineered trees, Monsanto uh, now owned by by Bayer. So it does seem as though the in, in, in demanding and opposing the kind of um, privatization that Modi is suggesting that they are indeed also making a struggle for the environment and for the land. Uh, Didi, your final thoughts on this? Um, yes, um, thank you, Margaret. We are campaigning for care income for mothers and all who nurture the land and soil, care for farm animals and defend the natural world, um, you know, which we're all part of. And our network includes women farmers in Nigeria and Uganda who are defending the land and their communities there in Thailand, rural communities who, again, facing death threats from corporations and from landmine uh, corporations. And, you know, in, in Haiti, there's U.S backed government has organized paramilitary death squads against rural and urban communities. We want a different world where the environment is nurtured, where people are nurtured, and the economy is at our use rather than we at the exploitation of the economy. We have to save the world. It's the climate change has affected people, as you say, starting with people from the south in a terrible way, and we must uh, we must support the movements that are defending um, us and the environment and our communities. Right, and, and Didi, uh, for people who want to uh, support these efforts to be in solidarity with the striking farmers, but also specifically uh, with the women, but not only, uh, what should they do? Is there a, a, a website that they can go to to get more information? And, and also, there's some suggested tweets, et cetera, that um, uh, our listeners can do in solidarity and support, Didi. Uh, yes, um, we've been on our um, Global Women's Strike website, um, we, and we've also been working, of course, with women of color in the Global Women's Strike. We've been, you know, um, we're putting up information um, as we, we find it and sending support messages. And can I say that the contacts that we have uh, on the ground have said that the farmers really need the international support. That is very, very important to them. So if people can send messages um, and do anything they can, you know, this, this struggle will continue and we, we must support them all the way. Right. Well, Didi Rossi, thank you for taking time to join us and, and thank you for your work in helping to coordinate this um, support uh, that you are involved in. Thank you, Didi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh all righty. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, a growing uh, movement, it seems. Uh, you know, when we think of India, we have to remember it is massive. Indeed, just the middle class alone, I read somewhere in India, is about the size of the entire population in the United States. This a struggle of farmers. This is tens of thousands and thousands of thousands who are involved, and it seems to be solidarity spreading around the world 
but inspiring uh, farmers in California, other parts of the U.S., and other parts of the world uh, to really take up the struggle to defend and support family farms and oppose these huge uh, mega farms who also do great destruction to the land. We are going to take a station break now. When we return, uh, COVID-19 um, devastating indigenous uh, communities uh, in particular, and uh, also the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Right, the late great Bob Marley, stand up for your rights. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are also on Facebook. If you're a member, you can like and friend us there. And check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org for our community calendar, videos, and other uh, news stories. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And uh, today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri, and internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Saskatoon, Canada. And now we are going to turn our attention to uh, COVID-19 continuing to devastate uh, the nation. There is, of course, a little bit of good news in California. The governor has now uh, lifted uh, the stay-at-home order, although there are some health officials that are questioning the wisdom of that because uh, COVID is still very, very widespread in uh, California as in other parts of the nation. And then uh, there are the variants. It has now been reported that the variant of COVID-19 from Brazil is now in the United States. There are other variants, one from the UK and one from South Africa as well. And officials, public health people are trying to figure out the impact of the the efficacy of the vaccines and these new variants. And there is some information beginning to emerge uh, from Moderna that their vaccine seems to be effective, uh, they say, in the uh, the UK variant. So there are a lot of things happening um, there. And uh, Joe Biden, President Biden is now saying that in just a, a couple of months, there will be around 600,000 deaths in the United States. I mean, it's really hard uh, to imagine, and I really hope people are not becoming numb to that and realize that these are real people with lives and, and families who love them. Uh, some communities, though, have been hit particularly hard, uh, the black community, Latinx community, and also indigenous lands, indigenous nations have been devastated by COVID-19. Let us go now to a clip from uh, CBS on the devastation in one particular uh, indigenous nation. One of the groups that have been hardest hit by the pandemic has been the Native American community. Joining me now is Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr. He is the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Thank you very much for joining us, Chief Hoskin. Native Americans are dying at an exponentially higher rate than the rest of the country. What toll is the coronavirus pandemic having on the preservation of Native American culture as a whole? 
Well, it's taking a great toll on our nation. And when we think about what's most precious uh, in the Cherokee Nation in any time, it's our elders. And when we look at our elder population, that's by and large who our fluent speakers are. Uh, we're a, a large Indian nation, 385,000 citizens. We only have about 2,000 fluent speakers left. And if we lose our language, we lose really something very special in what it means to be Cherokee. And so we've lost at this point nearly 40 fluent speakers. Uh, that means we've lost something that's a national treasure. And so that number alone is jarring to me as chief of the Cherokee Nation. All righty. So let's welcome our guest, uh, Ethel Branch. Let's welcome her back. She is the former attorney general for the Navajo Nation. She is the founder of the Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief Fund. Uh, Ethel Branch, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Ethel, um, we heard uh, from the chief there of the uh, Cherokee Nation, of course, your nation, your um, uh, the Navajo Nation, but I'd like you to get your response on what he was saying. Are you finding similar issues in the Cherokee Nation that uh, he described, the Navajo Nation that he described happening with the Cherokee Nation, Ethel? Um. Yeah, yes, definitely, absolutely. Um, and what he mentioned in terms of our elders is really what inspired um, me to form this organization along with a number of other really amazing women in our community, um, and that's the vulnerability of our elders. Um, and, you know, on January 12th, the New York Times reported that on Navajo Nation, 565 of our 869 deaths at that, at that time we're among people 60 and older. Um, and so, you know, our elders are particularly vulnerable. You know, many of them, um, in addition to being elderly, also have underlying health conditions. Um, and really, um, you know, that, that article pointed out that the pandemic devastated the ranks of our Hatasli, um, that's our traditional medicine men and women. Um, and so, it, you know, when, when the dust settles from COVID-19 uh, on the Navajo Nation, um, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned for what that means for um, impacts to our culture and, and who we are as Native people, as Navajo people. Um, I mean, really, that is that is defined by our language um, because our language gives us access to um, spirituality. That you can't have these prayers and this healing done in a language other than Navajo. Um, and, you know, some of these concepts that are articulated in these prayers and songs can't even be accessed uh, without that language connection. And, you know, we have, we have the standard Navajo that we speak today, and then we have um, an old Navajo that only our medicine people speak. And so to be losing them at such a high rate uh, is incredibly alarming from a spiritual and cultural um, perspective here at Navajo Nation. Um, and just personally, you know, I I'm I can't really go on social media right now um, because my feed is just so full of people posting about losing a family member, um, you know, fundraising for funerals, and it's just the loss of life in our community right now is overwhelming. Um, and just to give you a sense for the numbers, um, as of yesterday, we've had 27,573 total cases. 
um, and our, our domestic population uh, that these numbers are being tracked within um, is about 170 to 180,000. Uh, so the you know the rate of um, of total of case contraction is is higher than 10 percent. Uh, it's approaching 20 percent at this point, um, and it, it is absolutely more than double the U.S. national average. Um, you know, as of early December, one in 10 of our people had been infected with the virus. Um, and since November 11th, I've just been personally tracking the data that the Navajo Nation has been posting on our website. Since November 11th, our, the number of cases in our community have increased by 115 percent. Um, so it's, it's, it's really staggering. Um, and then as of yesterday, we've had 977 total confirmed deaths. And I tried not to track the deaths because, you know, it's just so um, such a, a morbid thing. Uh, and I, I tried to focus on positive things, um, but I did go ahead and start tracking it from November 23rd, um, and the number of deaths in our community has increased by 65% in the last two months. Um, so, yeah, the, the COVID yeah. continues to be an intractable challenge in our community. And and your community and on indigenous lands uh, across um, what is now uh, known or called the United States, and uh, looking at what um, the Muskie, um, Muskogee elders, um, they are speaking out. Uh, the Diné elders are speaking out. They're talking about uh, for the Muskogee elders. In the New York Times is reporting that the grandparents or Mikos who are the traditional people who knew how to prepare the annual ceremonies, how to do the sacred fires, um, uh, you know, all all of that uh, in, in danger right now of, of being lost, some of that knowledge being lost in addition to uh, the language. But the article then goes on to say, and I'm sure this is some of your work, uh, Ethel, about Navajo, um, the Navajo Nation, Navajo women um, starting a campaign helping to deliver uh, meals, sanitizers, uh, checking in on elders, etc. So tell us a, a little bit about that, about what the efforts that you are uh, making um, particularly for the elders, but of course not only the elders in the Navajo Nation, Ethel. Sure, absolutely happy to do that. You know, and I, as I mentioned before, I, I'm a positive person. I try to look on the bright side of everything. And so the things, two things I'm most thankful for right now are the vaccine. We've had access to that basically from day one, and the administration is happening very quickly in our community. Um, and then the second thing is that I'm personally able to do something to help save our people's lives um, because I just don't think I could I could stand by. And so I'm just so thankful that we have so much support from from donors to be able to do this work. Um, so the core of our work is providing care packages, and care is sort of the interrelatedness, the philosophy of interrelatedness and relations, um, familial relation between our people. Um, and in those care packages, we provide people with two weeks' worth of food, water, and PPE. Uh, and that's provided to, um, we try to focus on elders, immunocompromised, and families, struggling families with children, uh, which, you know, with an unemployment rate of 50 to 60% in our community, most families with children are struggling, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, since inception, we started on March 15th. We've been able to provide these care packages to 67,000 households. 
Um, and that translates into about 252,000 people that we've served, which is more than the combined population of the Navajo and Hopi reservations. And those are the two um, populations that we serve. Um, you know, we've been able to serve all 12 of the Hopi villages at least once, uh, as well as some other Hopi satellite communities. And we've been able to serve 93 of the 110 chapters on Navajo Nation in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And many of those communities have been served multiple times. Um, and so every week we're bringing 100 to $200,000 worth of this food, water, and PPE and cleaning supplies and other essential items like adult pull-ups, diapers, sanitary napkins, toilet paper, all of which we're including in our care packages. And we typically serve about 10 to 20 Navajo and Hopi communities every week. Um, and then, you know, after um, encountering that initial wave of COVID and experiencing the inaccessibility of PPE, like hand sanitizers and masks, uh, once we gained access to that in early July, we've been working to develop a PPE distribution program. Um, so, you know, the first week of November, we were able to launch that. Um, and with that program, we're just trying to saturate our community with PPE and give everyone the greatest chance of survival, essentially. Um, and with that program, we've been operating for nine weeks now. We've been able to provide about 25,000 individuals uh, on, on Navajo and Hopi um, with these PPE kits, um, with about 3,000 of them. Um, and those kits each contain 50 of the three-ply masks, one container of the 75-count Clorox wipes, which nobody can buy now. So I'm so thankful that we bought those in bulk well in advance of the second wave. Um, and then also an 8-ounce bottle of hand sanitizer. Um, and, right. then we also and, and Ethel, have, for, for people who want to um, help with this, because, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's amazing um, the amount of work that you've done. And, and as you say, working on the positive and, and uh, support for people who are still with us. Um, what could people do to support your efforts? I'd like you to mention that. And then I do have another question. Uh, question in relation to the new Secretary of the Interior. But first, what, how can people support sure. your efforts? Absolutely. Um, well, they can go to our website, um, NavajoHopiSolidarity.org, um, and there's a link to donate to us through GoFundMe. Um, you can just go directly to GoFundMe and search for Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief Fund. Um, we have, you know, on that platform, we've raised over $7 million, and we've also spent $6.5 million as of the end of uh, 2020, so the need is certainly ongoing. Um, and then, um, you know, you can also donate directly through our fiscal sponsor if someone wants to write a check or, or wire funds. Um, but that's the, the best way because we have a supply chain already in place with established um, food suppliers, and then that helps us get things where they need to go in like a semi-truck because we're moving massive amounts of items. But, of course, we're also right. very thankful to receive in-kind donations. We've been able to move over 200,000 sewn masks, um, donated face shields, and other PPE supplies. So we were also very happy to take in-kind donations of either PPE or food. Like we were also really blessed with a donation from Jason Momoa's water company really early on, and that was extremely helpful. So... Um, you know, right. water, food, PPE donations are, are so, so appreciated. 
Okay, and we'll we'll post that website information on the Sojourner Truth social media as well. Before you go, Ethel Branch, I think last time we spoke with you, uh, Deb Holland was being considered. We weren't sure yet, uh, from what I could recall. She has now been named by President Biden uh, Secretary of the Interior. Um, as you know, Native lands have been just so under attack, um, the environmental and, and in other ways. And I wanted uh, your thoughts on Deb ha- um, Holland as Secretary of the Interior and what you are hoping uh, for, what you're hoping that she would be able to achieve. Ethel. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, you know, as MLK said, <laughs> the the arc of, of of history um, bends towards justice, um, and I feel like the arc is bending quite a bit further um, with Deb being um, named as the nominee for President Biden. Um, you know, first we had a, an assistant secretary who was Native, um, and, and now to have this. I mean, it's just really, really phenomenal. Um, I think, you know, this is really um, noteworthy because finally the trustee is one of us, right? Um, and, and that's certainly that was true when she was in Congress as well, but um, as Secretary of Interior to have some level of, of um, agency in terms of how policy is implemented with respect to Indian nations, and then also especially to be in that position where, um, you know, decisions are being made about how to continue the legacy of Indian country being a national sacrifice area for this country right. is happening, you know. Um, and so she she has the opportunity to prevent us from being you know, utilized in this colonial manner um, and, and has the ability, hopefully, to usher in a new era of Indian policy that will truly empower Indian nations. Uh, you know, we've been under right. this era of Indian self-determination since 1970, and that honestly, that policy has grown stale, uh, and it has never really been meaningful for the Navajo people. You know, our health and, and economic indicators in 1970 were better than they are today, actually. Um and so, you know, I'm really hoping that Deb can help lead a new, the entrance of a new policy that will actually bring in massive resources that Indian country needs and that has made, like, the absence of which has made us so vulnerable to COVID and also presents, uh, and COVID presents, present, let's just be real about that, COVID presents an existential threat to Indian people. Like, we may not, I don't know how we're going to emerge from this, but it is it is taking out our population, huge swaths of our population. Right, Ethel Branch, we really, really appreciate uh, your thoughts here. We'll, we'll have you back. We are going to, we are out of time for this particular uh, segment, but we appreciate uh, your thoughts and uh, we'll post your website information on our social media. Ethel Branch, um, former Attorney General for the Navajo Nation, founder of the Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief Fund. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Ethel. Mm-hmm. All righty. Mm-hmm. And we're going to wrap our show up now. We're going to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Alice Slater. 
Alice serves on the board of World Beyond War, is the UN NGO representative of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and a member of the Global Council for Abolition 2000. She serves on the board of Nuclear Ban US and works with the New York City Working Group for the International Campaign to Abolish uh, Nuclear uh, Weapons. So, Alice Slater, uh, welcome back. Alice, are you there? Yes. Do you hear me? Okay. I can. I can hear you now. Now, Alice, um, on Friday, January twenty-second, a UN treaty outlawing nuclear weapons went into effect, having been ratified by over. 50 countries, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was adopted in 2017. Um, tell us what is in that treaty, what is the significance of it, and then your concerns about um, who hasn't signed on to this treaty, Alice. Well, this is a wonderful uh, event because the world has finally banned nuclear weapons and said they're illegal, they're prohibited, you can't make them, you can't use them, you can't threaten to use them, you can't share them. And we never had that. We had the Non-Proliferation Treaty since 1970, where five nuclear weapon states promised to give up their nuclear weapons if everybody else promised not to get them. And they never gave, and they never kept their word. As a matter of fact, Obama made a deal with Congress to cut a few weapons from our massive arsenal with Russia, and he promised two uh, trillion dollars over 20 years for two new bomb factories, airplanes, missiles, submarines, I mean, and Trump just upped the ante. So now, for the first time, we had this wonderful international campaign that was going on for about 10 years because the Non-Proliferation Treaty was not delivering on their promise that they were going to get rid of their nuclear weapons. And we outlawed the bomb, just like we did for chemical and biological weapons and landmines. And it's a fabulous event. Now, the nuclear weapon states and the NATO allies and the nuclear allies in Asia of the U.S., we call it the U.S. nuclear umbrella. In, in the Pacific, we have uh, North we have Korea, uh, Australia, and Japan. All those countries didn't sign the treaty. But we keep nuclear weapons in five NATO countries, Germany, Belgium, Holland, Turkey, and, and Italy. And those countries, now that the bomb is illegal, there's huge grassroots actions. There are resolutions in Parliament to get the U.S. nuclear weapons off their territory. There's a divestment campaign, don't bank on the bomb. There are cities' resolutions like uh, Los Angeles, Toronto, Paris. They're passing resolutions in the nuclear states calling on their countries to uh, join this new treaty. And the new treaty provides for the nuclear weapon states to join and set up verification processes. So. It's a wonderful initiative, and we have, it's up against this new Cold War that the U.S. is drumming up with Russia and China. I mean, Russia has offered over and over again to negotiate for nuclear disarmament if we wouldn't do Star Wars, because we keep maintaining that we're going to dominate and control the military use of space. China and Russia put a treaty in to the U.N. where you need consensus to discuss it, to ban weapons in space, and the U.S. 
will not even allow it to come to the table to discuss it. So we are now in the grip of what Eisenhower warned us, the military-industrial complex. I call it the military-industrial-congressional-academic-media complex. And it's very hard to get the word out. That's why it's wonderful that you have this program where we're discussing it. And there's a resolution in the, in the uh, uh, Congress from Helen, Helen Nor Eleanor Holmes Norton for the U.S. to join the treaty. We have about 10 Congress people signed on. Call your congressperson, ask them to sign that resolution to join the treaty and stop the con We are now building two new nuclear bomb factories and making new plutonium pits. I mean, we should stop that, and Americans should get on the phone now and say, listen, these weapons are illegal, they're outlawed. Why are we spending one penny on it? Why aren't we negotiating with the rest of the world to get rid of our nuclear weapons? And as yeah, far as and North Korea goes, I just want to say about North yeah. Korea, Trump, the broken clock that's right twice a day, had something going with North Korea where he promised they're going to take 10,000 U.S. troops out of the DMZ, the, the military zone that's been there since 1953. We still don't have a peace treaty with them, and we're starving them. I mean, people hear sanctions doesn't sound bad. I mean, we're denying them food and medicine. And he made a deal, we'll take 10,000 troops out if you, you know, continue on our work to get rid of the bomb. And the Congress, all the Democrats, all the Republicans voted against taking 10,000 troops out of Korea. So don't make Korea into the, the enemy. It's us. It's like Pogo in the 1950s. We met the enemy, and he is us. That's what's doing it right now. Yeah, and, and Alice, one also, uh, you know, this is definitely giving a boost to the anti-nuclear uh, movement in the United States. It was a, a conference uh, held, I think it was this past uh, Saturday, with Code Pink and a number of other people and the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign, the Reverend um, Dr. William Barber and Liz Theo Harris uh, participated, as well as a, a number of people um, uh, speaking about the danger of of nuclear weapons, and then um, some protests have actually taken place in, in Northampton. Um, about 70 people protested uh, Friday outside um, the Harris Technologies on, on this issue. And then you have a, a state representative um, who was a Democrat who spoke wanting to establish a special commission to study the existential threat of nuclear weapons to Massachusetts. And then you also have uh, U.S. Representative Jim McGovern, a Democrat out of Worcester, who um, released a video, um, you know, really very pleased about the treaty on prohibition of nuclear weapons. We so. Extraordinary celebration around the world. We lit up the yeah. side of the United Nations saying nuclear weapons are now illegal. And at Los wow. Alamos, the belly of the beast, we had uh, uh, big banners saying nuclear weapons are illegal, stop making them, and, the, and they made them take their banners down and got a lot of press. I mean, there's been a lot of excitement going around the world. Yeah, and I also want to 
uh, a lot of people, I mean, the countries with nuclear weapons that we know of, the United States, the UK, France, India, Pakistan, Russia, China, North Korea, Israel, um, did we cover any of them? Are there any who have them that uh, didn't make that list, um, Alice? No, that's and all of them. There's nine that, of them. But you want to know mm-hmm. something? There are 14,000 nuclear weapons on the planet, and 13,000 wow. are in the U.S. and Russia. The other seven countries, India, Pakistan, China, England, France, Israel, have a 1,000 between them and North Korea. So it's up to us in Russia, and if we keep demonizing Russia and turning down their office to negotiate, we are the we are the main actor in this aggressive, terrible posture. The United States of America. I'm sorry to say it. I did a study. Stalin asked Truman after World War II. We were allies. We defeated Hitler. And we established the U.N. to end the scourge of war. And the first resolution was to get rid of nukes. And Stalin said to Truman, turn the bomb over to the U.N., under U.N. control, after we used it in 1945. And Truman said no. So Russia got the bomb. And it's been like that all the time, with Gorbachev trying to get Reagan and and Putin trying to get Clinton and Obama. And they always reject their office. Yeah, and and Alice uh, Slater, just finally, finally, we just have uh, actually about 30 seconds or so. I mean, much is made now about a black man being the head of the of the Pentagon, and of course, uh, one of the things he says he's going to do. There's a lot of concern about white supremacists within the U.S. military, as we saw from that um, takeover of the uh, U.S. Capitol on on uh, January the 6th. But also, it's been a revolving door. Lloyd Austin is his name with Ray. On and and you know the the weapons industry. So um, Alice Slater, for people who want to support your efforts and and stand uh, against nuclear weapons and and to support uh, the U.S. signing on to this, is there something that they can do? You can quickly tell us. Definitely. I mean, World Beyond War has its investment project. WorldBeyondWar.org. Okay. There should never be a revolving door where we can have a Secretary of Defense that got a million-dollar payout from Raytheon. I mean, okay. it's wonderful that we got a black secretary, but let's get one that's, you know, that doesn't have his hands in the corporate till. Like Absolutely. So we, we will post um, that um, website on our social media. Alice Lade, I'm afraid we're way over time. Thank you so very much for joining us. Okay. All righty. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our Sojourner Truth team today, our audio engineer, Teddy Robinson, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Thank you for listening, and you all please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.